You're listening to I Have Some Notes, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Hey Greg, I have a pitch. I want to make a Green Arrow movie where he gets bitten by a radioactive spider. What? Or, or what about what about if uh, Nick Fury goes blind like in the other, other eye and now all of his senses are heightened? What? Okay, well, uh, well maybe wait, maybe Jean Grey gets bolted by cosmic rays and becomes the Human Torch. And you mean like the Phoenix? Yeah. I have some notes. Welcome, everyone, to I Have Some Notes, the movie podcast where we take scripts from the ashes and try to salvage them into something that can fly free and soar in the sky like a, like a, like a phoenix. Uh, I'm your host, Liam Kreswick. I'm Scott C. Bourgeois. I'm Greg Beaver. And today we are discussing the film X-Men Dark Phoenix. Uh, and we are joined by a fantastic guest. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce uh, my friend, Olav Rockney. Thanks for having me on. Hi, Olav. You have the, have the distinct pleasure of being the first guest on the show in a very, very long time. I don't think we've had a guest since pre-COVID days. Remember those? Uh, barely. The yeah, before remember. times? Gathering <laughs> it together. Was, see, it was easy to get uh, a guest to come to a place where we were recording and then just record with our expensive and glorious audio uh, system as provided by the Beaver Foundation. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, recording remotely actually added that extra step where a guest would have to be able to record remotely. And so we stopped asking guests to come on because we didn't want to have to walk them through that. But we decided to heck with it. Uh, Liam was adamant that you be part of an X-Men movie. And so we threw caution to the wind and here you are. Well, thank you for uh, for letting me be here. Yeah, your uh, your your sci-fi bona fides uh, speak for themselves. Uh, Olav, of course, a former journalist, uh, a regular volunteer at the World Sci-Fi Convention, and this I only found out tonight, and I was delighted by this this fact. Uh, Olav has actually contributed to the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, the 2008 edition, listed as one of the authors, uh, which I think is a very cool credit. Is that so relevant you, uh, for some reason? I don't get it. <laughs> if you ever need to know anything about Aaron Stack Machine Man, I'm the guy to ask. <laughs> and actually, I just I, I looked at my notes, and the last movie that I was ever paid to review was the first X-Men movie. Huh. Really? Wild. A little bit of serendipity. That's, I, love, I love how the universe just sort of shakes that kind of stuff out. That's, uh, yeah, that's very cool. Um, yeah, former former film critic, and and uh, here with us today to talk about this uh, this movie uh, from 2019, uh, directed by Simon Kinberg, written by Simon Kinberg. Th- you know, don't want to get ahead of myself here, but maybe someone should have taken some of the work off his plate. Uh, <laughs> starring James McAvoy as Professor X, Michael Fassbender as Magneto, Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique, Nicholas Holt as uh, Hank McCoy slash Beast, and of course uh, Sophie Turner. Uh, as Jean Grey slash Phoenix. 
yeah, this was a, this is an interesting one, and obviously a bomb. I think pretty famously, a, a bit of a bomb movie had a budget of two hundred million dollars and then made sixty six million, which is one whole digit less. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, worldwide it made two fifty two, but even like including advertising, I don't think there's a chance that it made its money back at the theaters at the very least. Maybe maybe some of that sweet streaming revenue got it back, but who knows. Well, no, there are, is no sweet streaming revenue because we went to it was on Disney Plus at one point, And then when we went to watch it, it was not on Disney Plus anymore. If this isn't on Disney Plus, then why is anyone buying Disney Plus? <laughs> uh, that's yeah. what I asked myself as soon as we <laughs> as soon as I had to rent this movie. <laughs> Simpsons? Question <laughs> mark. I don't know if this is getting ahead of things, but Simon Kinberg who wrote this movie also wrote X-Men The Last Stand which was a 13 year previous attempt to adapt the very same source material look and sometimes think- sometimes you just gotta keep trying the same thing over and over until it works and that's clearly the Simon Kinberg way yeah. but it, I, I find it so so odd because X-Men The Last Stand was actually the most expensive movie ever made at the time and was a notorious flop. So the fact that they took somebody who made a notorious flop and used the same source material and gave him a huge budget again actually just boggles the mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the the business logic in Hollywood is often very, very difficult to understand. Like no other business in the world would would reward failure as consistently as Hollywood tends to. Most directors end up kind of failing upwards, I feel. That certainly seems to be the case with most uh, current directors, at the very least. But th- this is like giving Josh Trank another $200 million to make another Fantastic Four movie. <laughs> oh, look, look, give it, give it six years. It's, it's gonna happen. <laughs> the same. Yeah, guy, I mean, yeah. we'll we'll be treated to the Josh Trank cut soon enough. <laughs> yeah, release the Trank cut. No, <laughs> don't release the keep, Trank. <laughs> keep it. Keep the. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of of the Fantastic Four, I did sort of find that this movie is essentially like she gets Fantastic Four powers. Like she she the sa- she has the same origin story as the Fantastic Four. Like it's a it's a movie about a superhero getting superhero powers, kinda yeah. I think, but it's interesting also because, I mean, people have often drawn the parallel to uh, Silver Age comics, but uh, between the X Men and Fantastic Four, you know, it's this family dynamic, and the theme a single female character in each team, uh, was the psychic, the telepath, the person who could project force fields, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, it, it's a kind of odd that she's basically now a mashup between two different Fantastic Four characters. <laughs> she's Sue Storm and Johnny Storm all rolled into one. Yeah, this is as far as I'm concerned. This is uh, this is part of the Fantastic Four canon now. Uh, <laughs> so now my new note is why wasn't Doctor Doom in this? Uh, <laughs> because he's another character who they because he's another character that they have not successfully managed to put up on the big screen. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. 
Okay, from Nip Tuck. Um, well, I, I mean, the, the whole X-Men uh, sort of mythos uh, movie and uh, comic books are, are quite the convoluted mess. So why don't we, uh, why don't we have the trailer see if we can uh, set, set the stage here for us and explain exactly what this movie is all about. Why did you make me do that? Look at me. Focus on my voice. I'm not giving up on you, Jean. She was my friend. You're my family, Jean. Stop. No matter what. Stop. Stop. Stop! Look. You're special, Jean. And if you stop fighting that force inside you, if you embrace it, you will possess the very power of a god. your fault, Charles. I tried to protect her. I'm scared. When I lose control, bad things happen to people I love. The girl dies. She's still Jean. We can still help her. Sometimes you want to believe people are something that they are not. By the time you realize who they are... Jean! Too late. Eight-year-old Jean Grey accidentally on purpose kills her mom in a horrendous car crash. Abandoned by her mutant-phobic father, Professor Charles Xavier takes it upon himself to bring this guilt-ridden child to his famed school for mutants, where he hopes to give her a second chance at life. He does this by lobotomizing her. Because why deal with feelings when you could just forget all the bad things that have ever happened? Now it's 1992, and Jean Grey is an astronaut, I guess? And wouldn't you know it, she's possessed by a doggone celestial alien force. Jean's power rating, something that all X-Men have apparently, grows uncontrollably, forcing old Chuck to once again try to control her brain. Whoopsie, she's now a better psychic than Siegzav, and all that mind-screwery spills to the surface, and Jean gets a tad upset. Can Chucky X fix this mess before a bunch of highly paid actors die? Let's find out. The answer is no. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Chuck, I like Chucky X. That was a nice uh, nice flourish there. Um, actually, I, I'm not super familiar with I think more people need to the, go uh... around... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, more people need to go around calling him Siegzav. <laughs> I was always a, kind of more of a street level Marvel and Avengers guy. I'm not super versed in the uh, uh, Dark Phoenix saga. The one thing I'm very curious if one of you can, some of who's who's read it can corroborate for me. Um, did Charles Xavier tinker with her brain and lobotomize her in the comics as well? Yes, he did. Um, but it was it wasn't when she was a little kid. Uh, it was when she first gained the Phoenix powers, Charles Xavier put up some mental blocks to keep like its dark impulses at bay. And then, uh, a villain called mastermind came along and realized he might be able to use her power for his own nefarious purposes and used his own mind control abilities to kind of break down those walls and unleashed the dark Phoenix. And, uh, then she promptly like murdered mastermind because she was a power he could not control and went on to start eating sons and, uh, commit genocides. And that brought a whole bunch of space monsters after her. 
so yeah, the the, the movie's kind of different. Right, so that wasn't, yeah, movie's pretty, but that, that, at least that key nugget was, sort of stayed the same. So, okay, good to know. <laughs> that does sound like a more expensive movie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can kind of understand why they didn't do that, I guess. But I mean, on the other hand, they made Guardians of the Galaxy, and it's got a bunch of space monsters in it. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is true. Yeah, but it's like chocolate and anchovies, right? <laughs> Chocolate's awesome, anchovies awesome, they don't work well together. You got mutants, you got spacefaring monsters and aliens, and I just don't see that they work together because the first one undermines the premise of the other. Yeah, it is sort of a hat. In improv, we call that a hat on a hat, where uh, like the, this game, the, the scene already had the game, and now we're now you're adding like an extra layer that didn't need to be there. Yeah, um, but I, I don't think we're uh, maybe here to, to uh, criticize the space adventures of '80s X Men. But no, I, but it I is think a good this, point this, that like it, this movie does tend to undermine it undermine itself quite a bit. That's fair. Yeah, I think it's a mistake to try and adapt that story to film, even though it's a very popular X Men story, because both times they've tried, they've sort of soft pedaled some major part of the story, and the House of Cards falls apart. You know, like. Um, it took, like, ten years of, of mythologizing in the X-Men to get to the point where the Phoenix Saga could be told. Now, I don't think the Phoenix Saga is a good story to begin with, but without that ten years of building up to explaining who the Shi'ar are and, and what the Emkran crystal is and all of these things, it, it just... It's, it's hollow. You don't have the context... Yeah, I think Hollow is a good good way to describe a lot of this movie. <laughs> it would be like trying to do the Infinity Gauntlet saga without having spent like five or six movies kind of setting it up. It would have all been crammed into one movie. It wouldn't have made much sense, uh, and you would have been you would have been making serious and important cuts left and right in order to make it all fit in one movie. Yeah, and and I, that's of, not a, and yeah. that's not a bad comparison either because. Uh, much like the Infinity Gauntlet saga was built up over years of comics, uh, so too was this story arc in comics, as Olav was saying. And it it's because it has that foundation that it works in comic form in a way that without all that setup, you're you're going to be struggling to get it to work on film. Yeah, I th- I feel like so. <laughs> the uh, some other ways that um, maybe they're going they're attacking this from the wrong angle is. Um, for uh, Charles Xavier has to me a kind of an interesting beginning of a character arc where he's worked very, very hard to um, keep mutants safe. He has this school um, and he has this team of superheroes that the government likes and therefore they kind of leave them alone. Um, and he's he's worked himself into a position where he actually has some power and some fame, and the, there's a conflict there about you know whether he's lost the focus of of the cause of of um, you know equality for mutants and um, you know and um, normalization of mutants and those kinds of things, right? And I I feel like that's really interesting. I don't know how the phoenix saga helps to tell that story 
Yeah, or how that story helps to tell the Phoenix Saga. Correct, yes. Yeah, either or, you know, like, who... <laughs> well, part and, of the... And, part of the reason oh, for that ahead, is... Scott. Yeah, part of the reason for that is because uh, they're trying to make Charles into kind of the pseudo-villain here by making him... But, like, they're keeping the part where he tries to keep Jean's power at bay by essentially lobotomizing her. And without the mitigating factor from the comics where she was already possessed of this power from an earlier adventure and it had already begun to lead her down a dark path, that it just comes across as really skeevy and villainous for him to just be like, oh, you have some bad memories from your childhood and I'm just going to like block them off in your brain so that you never have to deal with that trauma and never be upset about it. And that's like... That's really dark. That's super dark. And that's mm-hmm. that that's on the cusp of unforgivable. And it like it hurts his character to do that and it really paints him as the bad guy in this movie in a way that I don't think the movie intends. I I think that Simon King, Kingberg thinks that what Charles Xavier did was morally ambiguous and that that's kind of where it kind of fails for me because it, it, you're right Scott like it's clearly like he did a he did a bad thing and like everyone can see that he did a real bad thing and the audience can see that he did a real bad thing so there's no uh sympathy to be had for Charles yeah, yeah especially there's the scene where he's sitting at the table with Hank and Hank's like I need you to see that you have done a bad thing and he goes I haven't and yeah. it's like, wow, you're really just like laying it out. Like it's, it was, which which goes to mostly my problems with this movie is is just a lot of like kind of laziness and telegraphing and and you know one pass at takes and dialogue, um, and that that scene sort of rank of that where it's like, wow, this is a character like you don't see it in movies often where a character just flat out is like, we are having a conflict and you need to rectify it. Person on the wrong side, I will not. Says the dialogue. Movie <laughs> <The end>. like, <laughs> I have this theory about X-Men stories, and that's there's basically three X-Men stories. Uh, The first is that Magneto is right, and humans need to be stopped. Uh, Or Professor X is right, and we need to prevent conflict between humans and mutants. And the third type of story is that the humans are right, and mutants are a threat, right? Um, So the first, as an example, God Loves Man Kills, right? Um... This one doesn't get that and can't commit to any of those narratives. At its heart, the Phoenix story is a story about the humans being right and mutants are a threat. But this movie doesn't have the courage to follow through on that, so it has to soft-pedal it and make the mutants not a threat. Yeah, they and they do that by introducing the alien threat. Because there's this mm-hmm. m- this out of context villain that shows up and is even more dangerous, it means that all of the terrible things the mutants do to each other and to innocent bystanders <laughs> throughout the course of this movie uh, just kind of gets swept under the rug in a way. And there's there's no resolution to it. Like there's no consequences at the end of the movie. Everybody's just like, well, I, Charles isn't the head of the school anymore. That's the worst consequence that happens. And, and, and if I'm not mistaken, it's because he chose that. Like, it wasn't even because he was forced out. Um, and I kind of agree with Olav there. I think it would be interesting if the movie had 
the guts to follow through on that and to have the movie end at a point where it's like, I guess we need Sentinels now because mutants can't be allowed to exist if this is what's going to happen. And like, that's, that's a super dark ending, but maybe that's mm-hmm. the ending it should have been going towards. Maybe that, and it, and it that would have made it a better ending that, yeah, the kind of ending that would have made me want to see the follow-up to this movie and yeah. not never pick up an X-Men movie again. That would have made this movie the Empire Strikes Back of the of the current X-Men franchise, essentially, because that like it would have ended them in such a terrible place that you kind of want to see the follow-up and be like, oh, crap, Like, how do they get out of this pickle that they found themselves in? And Jean is dead, so she's not going to be there to help. In the original comic book, remember, she commits genocide. She literally blows up a inhabited planet oh yeah well and that's i think the i think the problem then sounds like between between gene professor x and these uh you know generic do nothing villains uh alien villains i think the villain might actually be the problem of this like we might we might be able to um uh start fixing this by by maybe just like reconsidering the whole concept of the villain of this film because it doesn't really seem to want to pick one yeah, and well, yeah. it does pick one, it, but it picks the wrong one. It throws in these aliens oh, yeah, and has them point. be the villain. What the movie needed to do is it needed to pick Charles Xavier, Magneto, or Jean Grey to be the villain of this movie, and it did not have the guts to do that for all three of them. So it added in Jessica Chastain as the most boring alien in cinematic history <laughs> to, to be the villain. And there was yeah. no good reason for Magneto to be there. Not really, no. No. But if you're going to yeah, have yeah, him I be there, that's why that's why what's her name dies. The uh, Raven is just to to find some reason to get in there. Which is yeah, Michael Fassbender gross. wasn't quite as shitty about being part part of this movie. As, which is as, which is real gross, by the way. That they fridged a character, they fridged uh, one of the like main female characters to make the the dudes feel bad and want to do stuff in the plot. I, oh, I, my, my understanding was they frigid her because Jennifer Lawrence wanted as little to do with this film as possible. Yeah, but and here's so killing her at the beginning of Act 2. Here's the thing. You could have written her out without killing her. And it would have worked. And the yeah, fact that they just went, eh, we're just going to kill her off. Like, And it's mystique for, for crying out loud. She can change her shape. She could have been any other actress replacing her and just been like, I decided to go for a new look. No one would have questioned it. I also... did. Correct me if I how many how many scenes did she have with um with Jean before she dies? Maybe Cause two. I yeah, because I really didn't feel much for that whole brief conflict between them before Jean accidentally on purpose kills her. Yeah, like I don't know. It, it just like it just didn't. None, none of that worked for me. I didn't. Uh, I I didn't get that they were great f- friends. I, I didn't feel like um, Gene cared all that much for anyone other than Scott on the team. So it, it just yeah, there was like it's kind of came out of nowhere that this was like all of a sudden supposed to be a big emotional moment between the two of them. Part of those problems there are the cast because uh, I'm sorry, but um, like Sophie Turner is kind of terrible in this movie. And if we're feeling a lack of connection between her and uh, and Cyclops, you know, part of that rests on, on Sophie Turner being terrible and Ty Sheridan being so bad 
that I never want to see him in a movie ever again. He's just so bad. Yeah, once you once you pointed out he was from Ready Player One while we were watching the other day, I was just, oh, oh right. man, I want, oh, I want, no, oh, man, I hate him already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we took one look at him, and I was like, oh, is that Parzival? It was. Um. And, and I hate Ready Player One so passionately, and I actually hated him more in this. There's, I, there's, there's a very lot little... of, there's a definitely a lot of flat performances in this film and, and and no none of them are are quite as flat as Jennifer Lawrence cuz she is phoning it the fuck in the whole time and like I, there's a, there was an intimation made that like her 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 makeup was bad because she didn't want to sit in the uh in the uh makeup chair very long it really just looks like blue face um maybe a couple dots okay you're good you're mystique now see you later and and a real real bad red wig to go on top of it too. Mm-hmm. There's very little chemistry between most of the cast in this movie, and I don't think that J Law is the only one who's kind of phoning it in in this one. And yeah, you can, I think we can more count the people yeah. who are showing up as opposed to the ones who aren't. Like uh, Fastbender yeah. shows Fast up. Fastbender is great. He's so good, and it makes no sense why he would be the one giving a performance in this because his character uh has nothing really to do yeah i i the scene where they met i got i i got pretty chapped it's sort of where i i kind of checked out of this movie because there's this line where she she goes to she the whole reason she goes to magneto is to be like i how do i stop hurting people you hurt people and then you stopped how as if like like, and I get it's like, oh, she's confused. She does no one else to turn to. Like, I get it's that story beat, but it, it supposes that, like, has she been walking around thinking Magneto has been hurting people by mistake this whole time? <laughs> like, <laughs> he's he's doing it deliberately. Uh, you're, you're, you've got this power you can't control, and you're doing it on accident, you know? Uh, and then and I was really struggling to try to find a good example of, like, like a, like an analogy, and all I could come up with is if you like were really clumsy and kept dropping watermelons, and then you went to Gallagher and was like, "Gallagher, how do I?" You stopped. He's like, "I retired. I, I did that on purpose for years." <laughs> there's there's one exchange that really highlights how both bad the dialogue and kind of flat the acting is in this movie, and it's at the climax where uh, where Chastain and uh, Sophie Turner as Jean Grey go flying off into space with the with the Phoenix power, and uh, Chastain says, "Your emotions make you weak." And Jean Grey responds in the most flat, monotone possible, with abs- like like the director had to have told her to dial it down to get to the level of just absolute neutrality <laughs> that she is. She says, "My emotions make me strong," while showing no emotion whatsoever. And that is the that was the perfect. That was the microcosm for the entire movie, right there. It was beautiful. It was it was it was in itself a work of art and worthy of an award. I, I believe that is the point where I, where I typed in "fuck off" in the chat because <laughs> I what did that have to do with anything? Like the, there was no the, there was no theme of uh, overpowering emotions in the movie. Was there? Am I missing no. something? I mean, it really wasn't. <laughs> kind of, but it was not well told because she was getting emotional because of all of her, all of her Phoenix powers. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, but like they never, 
they never broached the fact that like that's why she was having those powers like like I, or she was having those accidents or whatever like i, I yeah. like i guess I, I guess you're right but like it just didn't feel like it was ever at the forefront of oh goodness of what no. the movie was supposed to be about it, it was, wasn't a theme it, that was carrying through through the whole thing it was such subtext you couldn't pick it up with like a subsonic sensor device yeah and it made it made it that much flatter when they get to the climax my my mutant power is picking up subtext. I was able to I was able to get it. <laughs> there you go. Because I'm super tuned to. I've really you know, yeah. It's, there's, this movie has no theme. Like this movie, this there's there's no there are no themes. A lot of the action is like, and then this happens, and then this happens, then this happens. Kind of. I, I think the I think the fact that like the that she gains Phoenix powers is the central thing that actually doesn't work for me in this movie because the whole like the her the cold open reveals like this like the her you know, she's not in control of herself and um because she has these phoenix powers like and they're making her do more evil shit uh, like it feels like you can kind of just blame it on those powers instead of her having to like face her inner demons and face her past. Like it feels like at the end, ah, she could just brush it off. I just, I, I had these Phoenix powers and now, and now I'm in control of my guess and movie over. See you later. I didn't, it just didn't feel to me like the, uh, you know, she, I don't know. Yeah. And that would <laughs> parallel the conflict that, uh, uh, Charles Xavier is having with himself of like, what have I done? Have I hurt people? How do I control these poor choices? I mean, like, you could have had yeah. this beautiful... Par- yeah. The script just needed more focus. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. there's no good reason to have the space shuttle scene. There's no good reason to have the Dabari. That's the alien race. Yep. Uh, there's no good reason to have Magneto. There's no good reason to have so much of of what's in this movie, and it just ends up being frenetic and chaotic, and hard to track. It's non-linear. Mm-hmm. Like they they shoehorn in a confrontation between Vuk, the leader of the Dabari, and Magneto, and what is gained by that? Twenty minutes of screen time. Yeah. Yeah. Action beat. Cool train crushing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, apparently this suffered from a lot of rewrites, but like, ugh, not enough like, rewrites. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, rewrites in uh, uh, again, they did some, they did a bunch of reshoots at the uh, that uh, train sequence at the end is apparently all a, all a reshoot. So a reshoot, yeah, was the word I was like, like after like, oh, this isn't working, but we've already got half the movie shot. How and the the test audience doesn't like it. How can we fix it? And it's just, yeah, ugh. I guess you know we haven't. <laughs> We haven't gotten to to keeps or cuts yet, but I mean, yeah, I gotta, I, can... I gotta feel like we we could probably just skip over it because this might end up being the longest I have some notes episode ever if we just continue to 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 try and hack it up. We okay, might as well go. Well, let's, we might as well let's truncate that just real quick because we all really did not like this movie and we all have a lot of problems with it. What is one thing that you're like, yeah, that kind of worked? I would keep that. Great, great idea. Okay, I'll go first. I liked the Phoenix special effects. Needed it too I, when I we were watching they it, looked, actually. Yeah, I thought it looked cool. I liked the cracks in her skin. I thought 
Um, uh, and you know that that coupled with the the eyes, I think, looked really menacing. I think that that in a movie where a lot of, uh, I mean, the movie's shot pretty flat throughout. Um, it's not an interesting looking movie, except outside of a couple good shots. Um, mm-hmm. So I was really. Uh, you know the stuff with you know, the phoenix generally looked pretty good i like the um the shot where she's in the sky right uh right above her her dad's old house uh, i thought that looked really cool looked looked very very comic booky just got the the position of jean gray just right to get that kind of like i'm flying look from the comics you know um but yeah like uh i just i just dug all the all the the phoenixy bits um some other of the special effects didn't really work for me though I quite liked uh, Storm, the the actress who played Storm, and the actor who played uh, Nightcrawler. I think just their depiction of those two characters were perfectly charming, and I'm like, yay, it's, it's Nightcrawler. Um, also, I don't know why Dazzler was in it for six seconds, but I was excited to see Dazzler for six seconds. That was going to be what I said. Uh, <laughs> I also liked Nicholas Holt. Nicholas Holt, um, as Beast. it's not his best performance. Uh, he plays Beast, and... Uh, there's a nice moment between him and Jennifer Lawrence where they reference uh, First Class, which is, in my opinion, the best X-Men movie. And they're like, they're recognizing they're the last of that group of mutants who hasn't been killed off in the intervening movies. Um, it's a good moment. Uh, despite the fact that I know at the very least Olav has... Uh issues with Magneto being in this film, Michael Fassbender is bringing it in every scene that he's in and is a delight to watch. Um, the yeah, other, just make a full Magneto movie. Which, just give I mean, us a Magneto yes, movie. Absolutely they should. Magneto, Nazi Hunter. Do it. Um, I had one more, but uh, you were talking about Beast and it derailed my train of thought and now I can't remember what it was. But there was one other thing that I liked. I'm sure there was one other thing that I liked in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Quicksilver. I was going to say Quicksilver. Uh, He's in like six minutes of this movie for some reason and I wish he had been in more of the movie, especially because his super speed special effect is cool. It's visually cool and it's interesting to see and him being knocked out in act one and not coming back until the very end is a shame. I, I, I thought they did a nice job of using Quicksilver to illustrate just how powerful uh, Dark Venus had become because he's, you know, he, he, you don't normally associate Jean Grey with like the power of speed, and then she's able to stop him uh, mid-run and throw him around a bit. Yeah, but he didn't need to be yeah. knocked out of the rest of the movie. Uh, is basically my point. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of the scene in the Justice League movie, which was one of the few good scenes in the Justice League movie when Superman is fighting the entire Justice League, and Flash tries to do an end run, run around him, and Superman like can see him and almost keep up with him and flash is legitimately horrified. Like it is a horror movie for flash. (laughs) Great. That was a great moment. But here's the thing with almost everything that has been said. That's good about X-Men dark Phoenix. Every element that we've talked about was done in a previous X-Men movie and more and better. There was more Magneto. There was more uh, Nicholas Holt. There was more of that that actor for for Nightcrawler in the previous few and then and Quicksilver. All of these were elements that were done 
just as much or better in either X-Men First Class, X-Men Days of Future Past, or, and I shudder to actually praise this movie, X-Men Apocalypse. It's almost as if this franchise has exhausted mm-hmm. itself. Yeah, this uh, this movie really seems like every like we described it as very flat. We've described it as very like like people maybe not showing up. It it seems like this was the the seventh punch card on like a make six X Men movies get one free. <laughs> <laughs> like, everyone just showed up for their slice of the two twenty million dollars and fucked off. Like still cost yeah. them two hundred million dollars to make. Or 20, yeah, two hundred million a time. But yeah, you know what I mean. Like it, it just everyone, everyone's put their hours in. This was their you know free one, and then they get to leave, and no one has to ever think about it or talk about it again. I'll tell you that two hundred million doesn't feel like it's up on screen. Yeah, no, it does not. Yeah. J Law must have taken a big chunk of that home. <laughs> yeah, not well, on the it, back end though. <laughs> but they spent money on Hans Zimmer. Yeah, for the soundtrack. It, and that was completely shocking because when his name came up in the credits, I was like, this did not sound like a Zimmer quality movie at all. This didn't sound like anyone scored it. Like, yeah. I, yeah, I can't I, even. I think everyone just showed up for their slice of that 200 million and did the bare minimum. Yeah. Like it was, it was a, it, it's the movie equivalent of Friday afternoon at the office. Like everyone's yeah. there. <laughs> but like, Hans Zimmerman handed Kingberg like a, a couple CDs he forgot about in his desk drawer and like, ah, I don't know, use this. The, I don't even remember the score to this movie and we watched it mm-hmm. last night and I literally cannot bring to mind a single note of music from it. No, it, it might as well have been uh, product, you know, production music from like Pond 5 or something like that. Yep. Well, uh, let's see if we can uh, spend this $200 million a little better than they can and uh, get into fixing this movie after we hear from our sponsors. The Edmonton Community Foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create strong, vibrant communities for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group. Once it reaches $10,000, you can start distributing funds. We also want to tell you about Vital Signs, an annual checkup conducted by the Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. This year's focus is on arts, philanthropy, green spaces, and sports and recreation. Learn more at ecfoundation.org. Welcome back to I Have Some Notes. We are talking about X-Men Dark Phoenix. Uh, let's get right into these changes, guys, because there's lots lots of work to be done. <laughs> Heavy lifting. I, I mean, I, I'll, may, may I start? Usually Scott Scott kicks it off, but I, I as I was watching this, I really felt like I knew what the problem was and how I would fix it. So maybe mine's a little simple, but my initial note, my initial fix for this film, uh, cut the uh, alien villains all together and have this be uh essentially where where um professor x is a moral villain who has to have a change of heart and a character arc in order to bring the dark phoenix back down to reality so that she does not continue to run uh chaotic and and uh uh hurt people and uh yeah i just really think you you could have told a a thoughtful introspective literally about psychics um movie without having to to have alien f- 
forces. Um, there, there's just there's so much you could have done. I would have cut those guys entirely, made the movie an hour and forty minutes, and just had it be between Magneto and or sorry, not Magneto, uh, Professor X and uh, Jean Grey. Magneto can be there if you want fan service. Michael Fass, at least I know who Michael Fassbender or not Michael Fassbender. Magneto is uh, these aliens. I didn't care about them. Uh, so I agree, maybe it doesn't need to be in the movie, but it's fun to see. So that is my fix. Make it 20 minutes shorter and just have it be about the the lobotomy and uncontrollable space powers. I don't even know if you need the lobotomy. Um, Prof X can be a moral gray zone without doing something quite so heinous. And where I'd actually take my cues for from for an adaptation of uh, Dark Phoenix is I would uh, throw out both Dark Phoenix uh, classic stories, the the Phoenix saga, the Dark Phoenix saga, and I'd pick up the trade paperback uh, Riot at Xavier's, uh, which is uh, Grant Morrison's new X-Men run in the early aughts, and it's almost the identical story without all of the outer space stuff. It's almost all told within the compound of Prof X's school. They replace the uh, Jean Grey character with a character named Quentin Quire, who's a telepath, whose power is just getting more and more out of control, and he's he's become obsessed with these, like, uh, Jordan Peterson-style mutant intellectuals. And so it's a battle for the hearts and minds uh, of the students and a battle for uh, moral clarity. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> you, you just, it, it's basically that the whole story just cut back to its essentials. I th- yeah. I think if I was to. There is kind of a page one rewrite on that one, though, eh? Yeah. I think, well, but also, who's sorry? Who wrote that? Uh, uh, Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison's already put some of the legwork in, so you know it's not, it's not page <laughs> one rewrite. Like. <laughs> I think uh, if you want to keep it between Professor X and Jean, and you really want to paint Professor X as kind of the moral, uh, the the moral villain of the piece, that that he's kind of in the gray area i think that there's the kernel of that already in this movie and there's something you can work with in his like newfound celebrity his pull with the president and his putting the x-men at risk um which is he's called out on at the beginning of the movie and it doesn't really come back but i think that could be the moral gray area here is that he needs to realize what's important to him is what is is peace with the humans and the the prestige and influence that comes with that more important than the family he's built at the school and protecting the people that he brought to the school to protect and he's he's kind of lost sight of that and he's risked Jean Grey and he's uh, that's resulted in her gaining these these new powers which are crazy and out of control and it's the reason why to an extent she's pushing back at him. And I think you take that, you take that as his moral journey through the movie is what's more important to me is peace with the humans more important than protecting my family. Mm -hmm. And maybe, maybe that's, 
a better moral dilemma than should I have lobotomized a little girl? Because you can actually see both sides of that. Like, uh, like, are you betraying the people who who trust you and who you care for to preserve peace? Uh, is the peace so fragile that yeah. like you have to be sacrificing them to to keep it? Is that a peace worth keeping? Like, there's there's an interesting moral dilemma there that could have been better explored yeah. and could have been at the root of Charles's. Uh, journey in this movie rather than oh I lobotomized a little girl and that was wrong <laughs> yeah do I lobotomize a child isn't much of a moral dilemma <laughs> and and you say that you can see both sides of it you can also see it happen in real time in the movie like yeah. it's 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 already cooked into some of the some of the scenes and some of the script right yeah and it, and it parallels Gene so nicely like they are both getting new powers they don't know how to fully comprehend and understand and control it's just Gene's it's just that Charles literal is, yeah and Charles is yeah. is his his political power and influence yeah and he yeah, has no, to like learn that. how to stop hurting people so that he can help her stop hurting people yeah oh there you go boom mic drop we found the through exactly, line. Yeah. We found the theme that's the through line to the movie right there, and somehow and the it, movie and it answers didn't... Greg's question from earlier when he's like, "I don't know how all this bullshit with Charles helps tell the Dark Phoenix saga, or vice versa." There it is. There it is. But the the thing is, we focused in on it. We lost the the aliens. We lost Magneto, and we focused in on Charles and his journey. And you've now got a compelling villain. And then there's one cool scene where Magneto shows up for like. To not be a character, but more of a like a cameo kind, not a ca- somewhere between cameo and meaningful character. You know what I mean? Like the the scene with Magneto in it, right? Like I, I actually, I'm going to go back to what I just said, and I'm going to rephrase that. I don't think if if we're doing this, then the focal character of our movie becomes Charles Xavier. This is a character piece for him. The villain is actually Jean Grey in this case, and she's positive, like. But she's a villain that can only be defeated by him overcoming his own moral quandary. Like, he has to grow as a character in order to save her from continuing to unleash destruction and hurt people. And that that's how I think it needs to be looked at in that case. So Jean does become the villain in this version of the movie. But she's a compelling villain who has reasons to be villainous and who we want to see oh, saved. Yeah. We don't want to see her defeated. Well, then it's not even a villain thing. It's a man versus man story. It's it's he's he's his own villain. Like, yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah. no, you're right. I'll take that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, is there a version of this where we can focus it on a woman? <laughs> uh well, I think I think mine. Well, maybe not. I'll <laughs> I'll throw it at you anyway, and sure. uh, I because I feel like um, <laughs> one of the the bigger mistakes that this movie makes at the outset is um, not providing a, a proper motivation for Xavier to mind lobotomize someone and I, I think that if Xavier had taken Jean Grey back to the, the school and then we see her struggling so mightily to control herself that Eventually, Charles has no choice but to put up walls within her mind. Um, you know, the, that at least provides the kind of moral gray zone that I feel the movie wants to traffic in. Yeah. Um, 
and it, and it doesn't necessarily have to come straight after the cold open. That could be something that, you know, gets revealed at a proper time, you know, maybe in the third or the second act or something like that. Um, you know, I, I think you could use the Phoenix to um, push Xavier through his arc um, by giving him more of a theme of, uh, of control. Um, you know, he's, you know, he's got this school and he's got, and he's, you know, he's earned himself a real good place in society. And, and, you know, there's something for him to, to lose there. And then obviously Jean Grey is the antithesis of this. She's doesn't have any control. She's, you know, he's got to basically wall her up to make sure that she's stays safe and everyone else around her is, is, is safe so that when the uh, phoenix breaks out, you know he's continuing to provide these walls and trying to uh, uh, trying to suppress the the dark phoenix. And I think it would be kind of interesting if the if the climax to his his arc is having having to learn to to trust Gene enough with these tremendous powers to let go entirely and that and that when he does he, he has to basically just like trust that like when i let go you know this person that i've tutored for years and years and years will be able to handle it on her own kind of thing yeah there's a flashback scene where he taught her to ride a bike at one point and you know <laughs> yeah, yeah and she blew up the bike yeah, and, but now he's got to literally like, all right, I let you go. I, mean, I think you <laughs> yeah. also that that conflict gets stronger if you lean into the surrogate parent conflict. Like mm-hmm. the problem isn't that she's losing control; it's that she has started to think for herself, and some of the ideas she's exploring are ones that are antithetical what he has taught so she's read Ayn Rand and is starting to think <laughs> okay well maybe you know the the this you know homo superior have some kind of moral obligation to take control or she's playing around with some kind of um, ideological uh, radicalization Oh man, is that, that would be a way that would to give you an opportunity to, yeah. that would give you a <laughs> that space would be a way to bring Magneto, Magneto in. right? Yeah. yeah. I was about to say I'm like I wish there was a radical idealist in the <laughs> X-Men universe who she could turn to in a dangerous way. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that she instead of and then again instead of it being a fight with Magneto, it's more of a like battle of like, you know, heart and mind and I'm sorry to keep going back to Riot at Xavier's. There's Please. a scene where Quentin Quire shows up to class. Uh, and it's an actual classroom, and he shows up, and he's wearing a t-shirt, and it's like a Che Guevara-style, like, print on the front, but it's like an outline of Magneto, and the words Magneto was right. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Oh, it's it's such a great scene. And, like, you can rip that wholesale into the movie and have it still, like, just, it hits. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, yeah, it would give um give a lot of texture to the rest of the film and and provide you know a lot uh, you know a, a through line 
uh, for the themes that you that the film seems to want to traffic in. So yeah. Um, I though I do cool. believe what we're suggesting begs a question that I immediately have an answer for. What we're pitching is a much more introspective and thoughtful, almost dramatic X-Men film. And of course, these are science fiction films or superhero movies. We need that action. Uh, but to that, I suggest, what action is in this movie already that we're really missing out on? Yeah. Like <laughs> that, that hotel fight scene the street fight outside of the hotel was it was so boring yeah <laughs> like but I hey don't... what about generic mutant who has dreadlocks for some reason sure. that hit people yeah this is something we didn't bring up in the uh first half of this episode but it was something that we all lamented frequently throughout this movie on the chat and that is that we spend a bunch of time in the x mansion and there are no other recognizable mutants there's just a bunch of kids None of them look like mutants. None of them demonstrate any powers. None of them are recognizable. And then we get to Magneto's compound, and there are mutants everywhere, and none of them are recognizable. Like, there's no Blob, there's no Toad, there's no Sabretooth, there's no anybody. There's not even, like, a B-level mutant. There's just, like, there's generic There's not even dreadlock. Mammo Max, for yeah. Christ's sake. <laughs> there's, there's generic dreadlock guy and mind control lady, like, question mark? Uh, a Psylocke ripoff. Yeah, there's, but there's no one recognizable other than, like, the core X-Men and Magneto. And we and were just like, why not throw someone else in there? And, and, sorry, and the cameo from Dazzler. I forgot the cameo from Dazzler. It's too many um, foreground mutants and not enough background mutants. Like, they yes. shoehorn in moments for Storm, who adds nothing to the movie, for for Nightcrawler, like... All of these characters are in there, and it just gets muddy and confusing. Give me three characters or four characters that I can really grab onto, and then just cut dialogue for a bunch of them, and have like a bunch of cool guys in the background. Yeah, yeah get a guy in the like makeup one chair, flaming kid. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, get get yeah, a couple people I mean, in the makeup chair the first, for a few days. It's essentially the first X Men movie, right? Like the school is is full of. Um, kids who can do wild things and they're not central characters and like the it's like this is done at a time when yeah it's i mean this is done at a time when the special effects would have been much more expensive to do so so it's hard to understand and excuse it in this film yeah Yeah, like like, go to hogwarts and see all the kids like hiding their wands like no no it's not time for that wands are only for class time we're just in robes walking yeah Yeah, it's (laughs) it's even in X-Men The Last Stand, you had, like, Jamie Madderox in the background, and you had, like, a brief cameo of the Juggernaut. There's, like, a handful of decent background mutants. It's really weird to see Xavier's school just full of school kids, and the only obvious mutants walking around are the X-Men, because it makes it seem so mundane when this is supposed to be a fantastical place full of nascent superheroes. And it it's a great disservice to the location to just fill it with a bunch of random kids. Even though, like, I, but I feel like that's this just rings true for this whole movie is nobody cared about what was happening to anything other than the main people talking at any given time. Because there's this scene at the end where there's a picture of... Um, uh, Raven on the desk of Mystique on the desk and it's like it's just the stockiest photo of her in like the ugly costume 
just sort of like it wasn't even a good photo it literally looked like mystique's headshot <laughs> and that's because at some point they were like hey we need a picture for this picture can we just take it or like it's just yeah the whole the the no attention to detail was spent where it didn't need to be and it, it was it was a real bummer and it showed yeah it i almost wonder if it's it was just time to retire the franchise and they pulled it one movie too long so maybe the note is just you know cast actors who want to be in it <laughs> start from the ground up yeah i mean reboots are popular so yeah just give it a shot just go back to the beginning your timeline's super fucked anyway yep and I mean, you're about to join the Marvel Cinematic Universe, so why not just yeah? Why not just cast with new characters, and then those characters can carry through to, or sorry, new actors, and those actors can carry through to the MCU. Well, I yeah. believe that was one of the things that we had a, a very loyal listener, our friend Deja here, provide a lot of uh, background uh, sort of information about this film and the production of it and the drama behind the scenes. And one of the things I really found interesting was how as they were making this they knew they were possibly likely maybe gonna get sold to disney and so that i think tainted it so as much as you can say like well they knew they were gonna go i think this movie was shot right at the point where they didn't know if it was gonna be a marvel property like if fox was gonna be bought by uh disney or not so um yeah the the background of this movie the the behind the scenes stuff is wild there's a, I, it, there's a there's a note in here too where the the at one point the marketing team didn't even know what day <laughs> the movie was supposed to be released on. I do kind of love the fact that the same writer got to kill the franchise twice with the same story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what we've yeah, learned I mean, is that that when will that will likely never happen again in movie history. No, it's, no, it's a very this unique is, thing. This is what needs to happen. Is uh the Mutants and the X-Men get introduced to the MCU, and when they're ready to end the mutant line with the MCU stuff, they bring back (laughs) Simon Kinberg to do the final movie. He does a Dark Phoenix movie, and it kills the franchise. Like, that's just, that's that's how you do it. That's how you kill this franchise every time. And I I say that because he's, like... He gets results. He's proven yeah, he's, he's <laughs> time and again that he can do this. So when the time he's comes the to do it again, exactly, you bring him back. That's very funny. I, I know I've talked a lot. Can I just say one nope. last just thought, Please. one overarching thought here? You know, maybe the fundamental mistake here is that Dark Phoenix isn't a great story. It's beloved by comic book nerds um, who have an emotional attachment to it from the early 80s. And it doesn't hold up today. And it's not worth adapting. But studios feel pressured by fandom to make this story, even though all their writers looking at it can't figure out how to adapt it. Uh, so maybe yeah, just I actually don't think it's kind of more like nerds. I think it's more like catnip to uh, to studios because they always gravitate to the things that 
uh, fans are most wild about. Like that's they want to be able to hang a hang a trailer off of the reveal of you know Phoenix or or Batman and Superman punching each other or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So like it's just it's I think the reason that it happened twice is just because the Hollywood studios just can't help themselves, you know? Yeah, yeah. This but maybe. Maybe I'm just just gonna go out there, gonna say that longtime gatekeepery comic book nerds who will tell people you're not a real X Men fan unless you've read this. Maybe just maybe they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I would also go so far as to say that this might be one of those comic book arcs that's just not adaptable. Like it's so yeah, I mean, it's so comic booky. It is so comic booky. And I mean that in the in the way that like it draws on so many different kinds of comic book tropes and a lot of the goofiness that came from comics through the 70s and 80s and it just might not translate to film. But I mean I would have said that about that some That love Marvel comes stuff. from the decade build up in the comics like it wasn't something that they squirted out in two trade paperbacks like it was it was it was the the people even as much as I love you know wagging a finger at gatekeeper nerds their their love for it comes from this like investment that they put almost a decade into and you can't just pick that up wholesale and drop it into a two hour movie and it's kind of the climax of the classic Claremont and Byrne era right like Claremont and Byrne told some great X Men stories many of which still do hold up today yeah this one doesn't and on that note yeah and it's uh we should probably turn it over to our listeners a little bit yeah a lot of big uh, a lot of big opinions on the x-men and our uh, listeners were definitely among them if you want to of course get in on the listener comments uh please follow us on facebook or twitter and uh when we solicit those comments hit us with your your take your hot take your cold take uh take out whatever you want to do uh, and I've got some duh, great ones for us now. Stephanie Chan says, uh, it's nothing like the comic, which is pretty sad. I am not usually a gatekeeper and am okay with adaptations, but the story would be told in a way better in a miniseries format. I think rushing the story of the Dark Phoenix into one film was a mistake. We lost a lot of character development in that. Uh, Stephanie also commented, something that stood out in my head about the Dark Phoenix movie was that I really like the entire sequence when Gene goes to visit Magneto at his compound. Very solid. Can't actually remember how the movie ended now. Whoops. Uh, Back to her comment about Magneto. I think the reason that stood out is because Michael Fassbender is, again, and we've we've said this a couple times, one of the only actors in this movie who is 100% in this movie. Like, he is there. He likes the character. He likes to play the character. And he's giving a really mediocre script all of his attention and it shows and that elevates all the scenes with him in them. (laughs) Yeah, it really does show. Andrew Craig commented way too rushed and the emotional beats weren't really earned. Mystique's death in particular was infuriating instead of poignant. Like they were merely mimicking the first two films rather than really thinking it through. Yeah. I think we all kind of hit upon the idea that Mystique's death was mishandled in this movie. And I realized that they wanted to write out Jennifer Lawrence. But again, you can recast Mystique easily because she is a shapeshifter. Like you could have dropped Jennifer (laughs) Lawrence and just had another 
comely actress come on board to be painted blue and just have her be like, yeah, I've decided to try a new look. How do I look? You could have had her also, she famously runs off with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. You could have had her get disillusioned with Charles in the first act and quit the X-Men and then just not come back for the rest of the movie. Quicksilver disappears after act one and doesn't come back for the rest of the movie. Like it would have been fine. Blood is that. Yeah. Blood is that. It's it. They fridged the character and they didn't need to just because they had beef with the actress and she wanted to get out of the contract. And that's really gross and unfortunate. Laura from Kino Lefter podcast says, how can you improve on? They should call it the X women. I mean, they should in the opinion. next movie. Absolutely. I, I must admit, when I when I read this comment first, I I expected this line to be really lame, but when it when it happens in the movie, it's totally fine. Like it's it's actually a it's actually a pretty good uh, point that Jennifer Lawrence's character is making. Yeah, the the hey women women seem to be saving the men. Yeah, it was a nice it was a nice little like brief. It was a good good line, yeah. Evan McDonald, also from Kino Lefter Podcast, says, uh, we unfortunately did an episode on this, but yes, I would have taken out so much, but not changed Jessica Chastain's name, which you have to look up as Vuck. Yes, the main villain is named Vuck, and I'm pretty sure they never say her name. Uh, also, we cut her from our version of the movie, so. What was the alien race named again? Uh, they were the Dabari, the Dabari. which uh, is a bit of a They're deep actually- cut from the actual comic. They're the race uh, that uh, Dark Phoenix uh, wipes out. Yeah, she genocides them in the book. I see. I, I missed the like. I I know you guys start talking about it in chat, like the Dabari, and I was like, I was like, I, I just didn't even hear it. It went by so quickly. Yeah, they yeah. mentioned the race name, and I legitimately was like, who? Uh, and I had to do a little research to go, oh, and figure out who they were. Like that's that's how They're- deep a cut that is. They're the yeah, store brand scrolls by the looks of things in this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're, the, they're the Dr. Zip of Skrull. Anyway, um, <laughs> Tony from Flix X-Raid podcast uh, commented, the Dark Phoenix saga is so epic and expands across so much of the Marvel universe. Why did anyone try to do this with only access to a limited amount of characters? Also, the train section feels like a completely different movie and does not fit with the rest of the film. Kind of, no. That also, might be because it's a reshoot. Also, it was bad and a waste of so much time and energy considering they tried to do it in X-Men 3. Why wouldn't they try and do a different story? It is not like they don't have decades worth of material to choose from that could have developed so many of the characters. Yeah, this is the same kind of issue that a lot of the Star Wars fans have right now with the people kind of in charge of the Star Wars franchise where they're like, meh, there's just no other material. Like, this is what we have. And people are, like, gesturing wildly at their libraries full of star wars books like there's no other material of course not there's no other material to adapt and that's very much the case here the comic book movies keep going back to the same well like especially the dc movies it feels like they keep going back to the same well over and over when there's so much more material that you could adapt and that's kind of that literally is the case here because they're remaking a movie they already made in this case (laughs) yeah as part of the same chronology, like it all ties together and somehow they're still yeah. remaking a movie they already made. <laughs> yeah. <It's> so wild. <laughs> I, uh, I pointed this out when we were watching it yesterday. This movie came out more or less exactly a year ago and 
you know, the fact that they're remaking this movie that's been remade poorly and so much of this movie is like half-assed and unenthusiastic, I really like, I can't help but feel like we squandered the movie-going experience. <laughs> like, this movie makes oh. a case that we don't deserve movie theaters. <laughs> you know, a lot of people on Twitter in the last couple months have been lamenting that the final movie they may ever have been able to see at a multiplex was Cats. So, yeah, we yeah. we came to, uh, a, like, a stopping point for cinema. <laughs> Yeah, this is we all we all needed a timeout. We don't we don't deserve movie theaters and seeing seeing big spectacles in a room with people and everyone gasping when Captain America holds the fucking Thor's hammer. Uh, yeah, we don't we we've we've wasted it on on too many X Men movies and Cats and Sonic the Hedgehog and we 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 need a timeout from from movies for a while because need to think clearly, about what we've done. This movie more than anything shows that we some of this shit doesn't need to get made. My uh, my last uh, movie I saw in theaters was Knives Out, so I'm feeling pretty good about that. Yeah. If that's the last one I ever see in theaters, I'm pretty happy. Uh, it was also I, mine, though. The person, one of the people I saw it with, put their feet on the seat, and I didn't say anything. And now I regret missing the opportunity to scold someone for putting their seat feet on the seat. Uh, uh, I will never come again. I went. Oh, what was the last movie you saw in theaters? Bloodshot, opening night. I heard Bloodshot was pretty okay, though. Uh, it's got a really mediocre beginning, and then a decent second act, and then a thoroughly mediocre end. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, my final it's movie... still showing. I quickly Googled it. It's still showing in theaters if y'all want to catch it <laughs> at North Edmonton Cinemas. It can't get out. It's like the rest of us. It's socially quarantined. It's quarantined. just shelter in place in the last <laughs> cinema it showed in. Well, you know, nothing else is coming out, so you might as well just keep playing the stuff that's there. Uh, the final movie I saw in theaters uh, was at the Garneau, one of our local indie theaters, and I saw The Color Out of Space the Nicholas oh, Cage. Oh, so film. good. Yeah, I quite like so it. So good. Uh, it's now on Netflix. So if you uh, want to see a, a really fun bonkers horror movie, uh, definitely check it out. So at the World Science Fiction Society business meeting this year, I proposed a motion to extend the eligibility of the color out of space for the 2021 Hugos because technically it was eligible this year because of a limited release in the fall. But I figured nobody had seen it, and there are, they make allowances for this, and you can propose to extend the eligibility of something that was released in too limited a manner. So if you are a person who is involved in world cons and can nominate things for the Hugo Awards, you can put the color of out of space on your 2021 uh, Hugo ballot, and you should. Yes, you should. I'm, I'm uh, three quarters of the way through it on Netflix and I'm, I'm loving it. I only stopped because I got invited to play Overwatch. Uh, <laughs> priorities. Your priorities. There you go. Priorities. Yeah. Uh, a couple more comments here, but that was a nice, uh, that was a nice little uh, uh, segue. Or not segue. Um, tangent. Tangent. That's right. Deviation. Deviation. Robin from Synopsological says, Dark Phoenix is what happens when the franchise is so poisoned that the former producer with no experience decides to direct. The best part of this movie is the train sequence, which was a Reese's shoot. I think that was the quote-unquote best. I don't know. Or maybe, maybe I don't know, Robin, you really liked the train scene. I don't know. Uh, everyone saw this, thought about Logan, and cried quietly. I don't think yeah. it's correct that he had no directing experience. 
because I, I think if I'm not mistaken, he he came in and uh, fixed the Josh Trank Fantastic Four. So he so didn't have job. Definitely didn't have good directing experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and our last comment here, Danica LeBlanc says, "Good timing. I watched this for the first time last week and enjoyed it. Good brainless fun with Professor X getting told off repeatedly. He needs to be taken down a peg or two." The comment about women saving the men all the time, gold and correct. Hey, yeah. might as well end on a positive note, right? Indeed, I'm yeah. glad somebody uh, enjoyed it because uh, I, I certainly didn't. Maybe it wasn't all for naught. Um, so, uh, and if you enjoyed this film, of course, it's it's your choice as well. I, we're not, you know, we're uh, only here to share our thoughts yeah. and our notes and our insights. Uh, movies that is are the a beauty fun thing. of art. Yeah, Mo- yeah exactly. Uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us today, Olaf. Well, thank yeah. you very much for having me. Uh, plug your plug your pluggables. Where can people find you, Olaf? Uh, well, I help run a science fiction-related Twitter account, uh, at Hugo underscore book underscore club. Um, I, that's about my only public social media presence. Well, there you are. But yeah, if you're interested in, in the Hugos and or book clubs, uh, follow Hugo underscore book underscore club on Twitter. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter as well at I Have Some Notes. You can find our podcast feed at IHaveSomeNotes.com. If you like the show, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help us out. You can check out all of our sibling shows over at the Alberta Podcast Network. Uh, there is going to be something there that fits your interests because there are a lot of different podcasts at AlbertaPodcastNetwork.com. We post new episodes every second week, so tune in two weeks from now for Charlize Theron's Old Guard. Yes, yeah, uh, older film, as I understand it. That's why old's in the title, right? Sure, yeah, that's how <laughs> yeah. that works. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> fantastic. Well, I have been your host, uh, Liam Kreswick. Our guest today, again, has been Olav Rockney. I'm Scott C. Bourgeois. I'm Greg Beaver. Wear a mask, Black Lives Matter, and keep watching the skies. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Park Power is a small local business, and like many of you, it's been closely monitoring the news on COVID-19 and the world's rapidly changing circumstances. While many of their team are currently working remotely, the way Park Power does business has not changed, and their commitment to exceptional customer service will remain. Find out more about Park Power's response to the COVID-19 outbreak at parkpower.ca. Okay, what about uh, what if what about if if Spawn finds out he's the king of Atlantis? Uh, a movie where She-Hulk falls into the Speed Force and becomes the fastest She-Hulk alive. Oh, oh, what if, what if what if Captain America gets the powers of Shazam?